good to be with you. I already said that. Can't stop saying it. I got a picture I want to share with you. It's going to come up on the screen. It's a 1972 International Scout II. This is not the most beautiful machine ever created. But to say that it has character is an understatement. I don't know if you can tell, but if you look up there, you can see some of the denting and there's scratches all over the hood. Now, I'm told that those got there when a beehive formed underneath the hood and it sat in a field in Iowa for 30 years and the bears were trying to get in. Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Not the prettiest thing ever, not much to look at on the outside, but boy, when you turn the key, oh my goodness. This hulk of a machine has had a transplant, a heart transplant, and it has a monster V8 inside, and everything underneath that is pretty much brand new, and it was transformed into just a, a, a wreck, a hulk, into a rubber-burning, bear-growling monster. It is incredible. I was so excited to drive this thing around the block, and uh, it, not because of the outside, but because of what was under the hood. And that's the reason that I couldn't afford it, because of what was under the hood. You won't see it parked in my driveway. Can you dredge a book by its cover? Maybe sometimes, but most of the other times you can't. And there have been plenty of shiny, cherried out vehicles that have been purchased only for the new owner to find out that this is an absolute wreck, it's an absolute jalopy, and I can't get rid of this thing fast enough. It's because it's not just what's on the outside, it's what's under the hood that counts. We all know that. That's actually biblical, right? 1 Samuel 16, 7, God said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All throughout the Bible, we see that God cares about what is going in, on inside a person. He cares about worship and obedience that flows from a transformed heart. Anyone can go through the motions. Anybody can look like they've got it all together, but God looks at what is under the hood. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. In 1 Samuel Chapter 7, Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods and Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. It's about the heart. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
and with all your soul, with all your might. The life that is acceptable and pleasing to God, it doesn't just go through the motions, but inside and out gives him the honor and glory that he deserves. It's not just what's on the outside, it's what's under the hood that counts. And you might say, well, Jared, that's not really news. That's not a big revelation. Everybody knows that. That's probably true, but it's also something that is easily forgotten as we see in Mark chapter seven. And we're gonna read just beginning from verse one here, Mark chapter seven, verse one. I'm just gonna walk through the passage again as we have, as we go through uh, the great narratives of scripture. It says this in verse one, Mark chapter seven, verse one, you can follow along. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, in parentheses. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, from our study in Mark, the past six chapters, we know that Jesus and the religious leaders, they didn't exactly get along, did they? After centuries and centuries of developing this very complex, detailed catalog of religious tradition, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the elders, they thought that they had it pretty much dialed in, pretty much figured out how this whole pleasing God thing worked. They were the keepers of the rule book. They were the ones who put on a show for everyone else to see what a life looks like that is pleasing, that is acceptable to God. And of course, at, their, at the basis was the scriptures. But over time, they amassed this dizzying array of extra-biblical rules and rituals to help people stay in line with God's commands. By Jesus' day, uh, walking according to these traditions, that's how it worked. That was the name of the game. That's what you did. And later on, these oral traditions, they were written down in what would become known as the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was combined with the commentary, the rabbinic commentary on the scriptures, and it was together formed what was, came to be known as the Talmud. And I think we have a picture of it there. Uh, you've all read this, right? Okay, this is like, you know, kindergarten stuff. According to the Talmud, it was God's desire for holy men, the holy men of Israel, to not only live out these commands and these traditions and the, and the things that Moses taught, but to teach others to do so as well. And not only that, the Talmud said, says that their job was to build a fence of protection 
around God's law so that the people would avoid breaking it. So you've got God's command, what God had commanded. Then you've got all sorts of extra rules, all sorts of regulations that act as a buffer to keep you from violating any of God's commands. That sounds like a pretty good idea, right? It's not that unlike those yellow lines in New York at the subway. They're there for your protection. Stay behind that yellow line, and it's going to prevent you from making a very, very serious misstep. Makes sense. The problem was that over time, people began to measure how spiritual or how right with God they were based on how closely they were able to stay within the lines that had been drawn. Being religious, it was about dotting I's and crossing T's. It was about keeping traditions. It was about performing ceremonial rituals rather than actually loving God and showing that love as you obey his word. And what's more, it's kind of a bonus. My ability to follow the rules better than somebody else? Well... That makes me feel pretty good. Feel kind of a sense of superiority here. God must love me quite a bit. In fact, God's lucky to have me on his team so I could show all these other people how it works here. It's not all that different from some of the ways that some people today go around trying to make themselves look more important than others. People do it in all sorts of different ways, don't they? They do it by the kind of cars they drive, how fast they go, how loud they sound, how beautiful they look. Other people, uh, they, they, they have the perfect skin or the right muscle tone or the trendiest outfits. You name it, people will use it as a, a way to claim their place on the totem pole, right? And so we use titles and we use bank accounts and we use real estate and dietary habits. I remember back on the playground, the kids bragging about how many beanie babies they had. <laughs> you remember those things? Where did they go? Thank goodness they are gone. For Christians, it can sometimes be how healthy we can make our marriage look to others or how well-behaved our children are around other people, how many Bible verses we memorize, what position we hold in the church, maybe how long we have held that position in the church, or how many times the pastor comes and talks to me, or, <laughs> or how to... How to be uh, how, how up to speed you are on, on current um, theological issues or maybe political issues. One of the things that is really, really big right now is, has to do with where your political allegiances lie. And we see this really causing a wedge in the church, big ways. Is not only causing a wedge in the church, it's causing a wedge in families. 
I'm hearing and seeing this all the time. I, 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 it's practically a daily basis, definitely a weekly basis, often from people that I've known to be very, very devout, very, very strong, long-time believers. And it's rather alarming. If that's one of the ways that we measure our spiritual maturity, I'm afraid something's not quite right. The Pharisees and scribes were looking for something to invalidate Jesus' ministry. They found it. They found it when some of his disciples were failing to wash their hands before eating. Now, what's with this washing hands thing? In Leviticus 22, 6 through 7, the Mosaic law prescribes hand washing for the priest before performing certain tasks or after touching something maybe that was considered unclean. That was for the priests. But the Pharisees took that another level and said, well, if this is for the priest, then they must be super holy. Why doesn't everyone become super holy? Let's require it for everyone. Everyone should be doing these hand washings. We see the note that Mark gives for us for those, um, for those who are kind of outside the Jewish tradition and outside of the know. He writes this in parentheses. We already read it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. They're busy. Now, tradition required that they wash their hands like this. You take your hands and you point your fingers upward. And then water is poured over your fingertips and comes running down your hand and spilling off of your wrist. Then after that, you take your hands and you go down. And now the water is poured over again and it falls from your fingertips. Then you need to dry your hands. You take your, the fist of one hand and you wipe clean that hand. Then you do the same with the other hand. And this was the way it was done. And it would happen before each meal. Sometimes even in between courses of a meal. And if you think that's intense, this, this is just the beginning. This is the beginning. The washings were more and more involved depending on where you went throughout the day. If you went into Gentile territory, if you had an encounter with Samaritan, or maybe even a Jew who was considered unclean, you had to go through extensive cleansing rituals. And he mentions these pots and pans and cups and couches. There seemed to be no limit to the requirements to keeping oneself outwardly pure. Wash, rinse, wax, polish, repeat. The outside had to look squeaky clean and shiny. And as long as that was done, it was assumed that the inside was good as well. That's a bad assumption to make, isn't it? We all know what it's like to wear a mask. We all know what it's like to pretend we live very, very close to Hollywood, and we know that people make quite a bit of money for pretending. It's what we all do. It's not just what's on the outside, however, that matters. It's what's under the hood 
that counts. Why are your disciples walking around and they're breaking all these religious traditions? Jesus says, why do they eat without washing their hands? Asked the religious police. And that's when Jesus brings them back, not to the traditions of the elders. He brings them back to the scriptures. And it says this in verse 6. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. They looked good on the outside. They looked really good. It was practically a profession for them. By following their elaborate rituals and rules, they thought they were good. Nothing could have been further from the truth because God saw right into their hearts. You can slap a fresh coat of paint on an old beater, but that doesn't mean that it's ready to compete in a race or to sit in Jay Leno's garage. What's more, it doesn't matter how carefully you follow your own rules. People have their own rules, don't they? They march to the beat of their own drum. But if you intentionally violate God's rules by following your own, you're just wasting your time. There are a lot of people out there who make themselves feel very morally superior by lining themselves up with the, the popular morality of the day. And so they drive those, those special cars that have low emissions, or they use socially accepted lingo, or they support the cause du jour. But if they fail to embrace what God says is right, Jesus says, it's, it's just worthless. It's not bad to, to, to drive a, a battery powered. No, it's not bad. It's not bad to be in favor of certain causes, but if you're not first and foremost, your heart yielded to God in worship and obedience, if that's not the, the thing that motivates you, it's, it's just worthless. They worship in vain and will find themselves, even though they're on the right side of history, being on the wrong side of eternity. The Pharisees were experts in sticking to their own moral code. Experts. And why not? It made them feel spiritually superior. And yet they were doing the exact opposite of what God commanded. Jesus says this in verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to, to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Now, we all know that it is a terrible thing to abandon or fail to care for your aging parents when they cannot take care of themselves any longer. It's the opposite of giving them the honor that God tells you they, uh, they are, they're deserving of. Honor your father and mother. 
In fact, it was such a serious thing that, that it was considered worthy of death if you failed to do it. Very, very serious. But you see, the rabbinic tradition had created a loophole. Oh, we love loopholes, don't we? We can find a way around here. And that is exactly what they did. All you had to do was say that the money that you had saved up, that should have been given to your parents, all you have to do is say, Korban, over that. All you have to do is say that. And by saying that, you're saying this money is designated. It is set aside to be given to God. Now, you didn't have to give it to God right then and there. You could hold on to it. You could keep it in the bank. You could let it uh, accumulate interest. You could use it as a down payment on a car or whatever, or a donkey, whatever it is you're, you're doing. It's just some later date you're going to actually hand it over. And also, that money, you could say, you know what, this is going to be given to God eventually. Okay, you know, so, so, sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't take care of you because this money right here, I'm sorry, it's given to God. And yeah, well, you know, eventually it's going to go to, you know, more important, someone more important than you. But then later on, you decide, you know what, on second thought, uh, Mom and Dad, they're, they're no longer here. I'd actually like that money back. And so you, so you just say the word again, and it reverts right back to you. What an incredible loophole. It's genius. It's great. So here Jesus exposes one example of the corruption that had weaseled its way in to the religious tradition of the day. The religious leaders, they were empowering people to do exactly what God's word said not to do. As long as they promised someday to give the money to them. There's a great book that our staff and our our, our leadership here have been reading. It's called Thriving in Babylon. I really encourage it. I ordered a few more extra copies. I don't know if they came yet, but we'll have them available at the Welcome Center next week if you'd like to purchase a copy. I think it's like 10 bucks or something like that. But it is powerful, um, full of powerful reminders of how to live in this season of life we find ourselves living in here in the United States. In one of the chapters, Pastor Larry Osborne, he talks about this person who started coming to his church. Started coming to his church, was there for a little while, and then the accusations started flowing from this person. He didn't really like the fact that Pastor Osborne wasn't talking about some of the current political issues that this person found very, very important. Pastor Osborne, how can you call yourself a Christian? You don't stand for this. You don't stand for that. You don't, you're not rallying the church to get in behind this cause or that cause. You must not be doing what God wants you to do. And he was standing in judgment over the pastor. The pastor wrote him a letter filled with verses. Not about how, whether or not he should support political causes, but, but asking this man to consider the fact that he had been living in an immoral relationship with a woman for years and needed to repent. Man didn't respond, he just left the church. Not surprised. When it came to what he thought was important, wow, I'm going to hammer this. But you know what? He was very selective in what he, was, he would get behind and when it came to very clear issues of following God's word and obedience, eh, I'll let that slide. Are there causes in our lives that we've elevated to first importance? 
We get all hot and bothered about them. We let those things be the dividing line between us and other believers. And yet at the same time, are there very clear commands that God's word makes that we choose to ignore? If that's the case, we might want to ask ourselves whether or not our hearts are in the right place. Because the last thing that you and I want to do is look good on the outside. To fool everyone around us into thinking that we have it all together. We're like Jesus Jr. (laughs) When in reality, we've got hearts that are far, far from God on the inside. Not just what's on the outside, it's what's under the hood. Jesus makes that clear in what he says next. Verse 14, he called the people to him again and said, hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him, he says. There are a lot of people these days that believe that human beings are basically born good. We're born with a a clean, pure, blank slate. And And it's not the things inside, but it's the things on the outside. It's the things that happen to them. It's their environment. It's their circumstances that make them either good or bad. And so you really can't blame them for any wrong that they may do, if you can even call it wrong. You can't say it's their fault because other things, other people, circumstances are responsible But the Bible teaches something different. And Jesus affirms it, that it's not the external forces that twist and distort our hearts. That work has already been done from the day we are born. Our hearts themselves are the problem. They're deceitful. They're desperately wicked. And if that's the case, then no amount of external pressure is going to fix that problem. You can't just follow the right rules. You can't just wear the right set of clothing or apply the right kind of polish. It doesn't work that way. Lathering up your car, rinsing it down with the hose, it's not going to fix the broken timing belt inside. It's just not. You got to get under the hood and you got to do that dirty work. And people thought if they avoided eating certain foods, they were going to somehow make themselves acceptable to God. And Jesus went on to basically say, nothing external is going to fix that. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? So there's a parenthetical note here that says, Thus he declared all foods unclean. All foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things have come from within, and they defile a person. You can eat all the right foods. 
You can go through all the right motions, but if you don't address the heart problem, if you don't cut to the chase and deal with the source, you haven't accomplished anything. And the Pharisees and scribes, they failed to see that the thing that hurt their relationship with God was what was on the inside. They looked pretty holy on the outside. And Jesus exposed the rottenness within. Like all of us, they needed that special under-the-hood engine work that Christ came to do. They needed hearts washed clean. They needed their sins forgiven. They needed a, a transformation that implanted new desires and new abilities to worship God with everything they were. They needed what the Lord promised in Ezekiel 36.25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will sprinkle. It's not, not physical water that someone's pouring in your hands. That's not going to do it. It's something that God does. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the order there. It's heart first, obedience later. Have you, had that, have you had Christ do that work inside of you? Inside of your own heart? Or have you just been playing a sort of, a sort of pretend religious game, going through these motions, doing and saying the right things, fooling everyone into thinking that you've got it all together, when in reality there's something very, very wrong under the hood. It's time to confess your sin. Confess your need to lay down your pride, to ask Christ to come and do a transformative work in your heart. Would you do that if you haven't? And for those of us who have already had Christ do that heart transplant, you've already placed your trust in him. He's even now transforming you into a person who desires to obey God as an act of worship out of a pure heart. Have you been tempted to elevate things other than what God says into first place? That's a very real temptation for us right now. We elevate it into first place and we're beginning to exchange what God desires for worship for what we think is important. Have you allowed traditions or rituals or politics or self-engineered ethics to become the basis for what makes you a good Christian? rather than looking to God's word. 
Have you begun to judge others based on what you care about instead of what God cares about? Or what about this? Have you even used the things that God does care about to look down on others? Maybe look down on others while you ignore or are even rationalizing away your own areas of failure or sin in your life. It's time to stop pretending that a shiny new paint job means that we're okay. Not just what's on the outside, it's what's under the hood. Let's be people who humbly come before the Lord and ask him, like David did at the end of Psalm 139, search me, know me, see if there be anything wrong inside of me. Let's be those kind of people. Lord, you do a transforming work in my heart. You weed out any remaining sin that is still there. Let's be people who are being changed by Jesus from the inside out. Amen? Lord, we humbly come before you, recognizing that even the very shiniest of us is very, very flawed. And were it not for the saving work of Jesus Christ, Lord, we have nothing to author, offer but filthy, filthy rags. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the heart work that he does inside of us when we place our trust in him and say, yes, Lord, be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for the robes of white, of righteousness that he clothes us in, that even gives us the, the ability to do anything that pleases you, that honors you, that worships you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in so many different things that are not of you, to place uh, priority on things and to diminish the things that you care about, Lord. Help us to continually come back to your word, to ask for your cleansing, to search and, and seek what you would have change inside of us. Lord, you know there is much that needs to change inside of me, and there's much that needs to change inside of each and every one of us who are in this room, outside, and even watching online. Would you do that, Lord? We wanna be authentic people, both inside and out. We love you. Thank you for your patience with us, Thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that even as flawed as we are, we know where we're going. Even now, you're leading us home. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.